our son, my stepson James, when I was moving a box one day and I was shifting some of his old school books. And I picked up one book on biology and I started to read it. And it absolutely blew my mind. And like he was like, you know, 12 or something. And I was looking at the type of stuff that he was studying. And I couldn't believe it. It was so complicated, so serious, such stuff for a kid to be taken in. And you know, in the, in the modern day world, our societies are educated at a very high level. Intellect has always been the same. If you're like Adam and Eve, we're no smarter than we are. We're the same as them. Intellect has never changed, but knowledge has, right? So people have always been able to know the same amount. It's just that we haven't had the knowledge. So knowledge has increased. But, and one of the difficulties that we encounter with that is we need to keep pace with the gospel. And in, a, you know, in the modern day world, you go up to someone and you say, Jesus loves you, fine. But we need to understand sometimes they need a little bit more than that. Because they have had it pumped into them from a child, all these proofs of this and proofs of that. And sometimes, I mean, Peter says this in the scriptures, right? Always be ready to give an answer for the faith that lies within you. And part of that applies to the gospel message. And what I want to do today is maybe stretch us a little bit, but it's necessary. Sometimes Jesus loves you is not enough. Sometimes, especially with the, you know, the up-and-coming generations, when they're educated in the sciences and different stuff, we need to be able to keep pace with this. So what I want to talk today is about what I'll call the logical gospel. People come to know Jesus Christ through many different ways. Some people, it is the gospel of love that attracts them. They see that God is a good God, they understand His death for them, and the love of God pulls them in. Maybe that was you, it wasn't me. The love of God didn't move me. Some people are saved through the gospel of grace. They realize that salvation is a free gift. And that sheer thing alone is enough to, 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 to draw them towards Christ. For other people, they're saved through the fear of God. And for some people, it's just downright logic. And I'm a little bit of a mixture of the last two. A bit of a fear of the Lord that draw me, you know, drew me to him when I realized that I'd met my first friend who was born again. And I realized he was going to heaven. That scared me because it convinced me that I was going to hell, right? So the fear of the Lord helped me. But it wasn't only that. Men can be, you know, quite logical, lateral thinkers, and it was logic for me. I wanted to understand the gospel. You know, when we get saved, it doesn't mean you have to leave your brain behind. The gospel is very reasonable. God says, come, let us reason together. And I'm not alone. I, I think of, of people like C.S. Lewis or Tony Campalo, uh, Josh McDowell, Many people, if you read their biographies, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're individuals like that. People who wanted to reason things through, and God will meet you right there. God is ready, but I fear sometimes the church is not. The world of science got a little bit arrogant through the 60s and 70s. I need to be careful what I say because we've got a lot of scientists right here. <laughs> but they did, globally. The world, you know, the scientific world got a little bit arrogant in the 60s and 70s. And there was almost like a subliminal thought out there in the world. And the thought was this, that science had discovered so much, advanced so greatly, that now we have almost disproved God. And that was, I mean, it was spoken by some, but it was very much the, the you know, theme of the day. I mean, they had landed on the moon. 
we had the whole nuclear advent and everything else. And there, there was that. But I thank God that things didn't stay that way because it's considerably different today from it was in the 60s and 70s. Knowledge still increases. And the day in which we live, the Bible prophesies this, the speed of the increase of knowledge has accelerated beyond our belief, beyond comprehension, how fast we're finding things out. And I thank God for that. Because the further revelations have left the scientific world in a little bit of a daze. And I'll just explain just a tiny little bit that I hope helps you explain the gospel to those who are under the weights of the things they've been told in school, for example. There's a man called Einstein. We all know who Einstein is. He's famous for one particular thing. Einstein discovered this, that time, time is a physical property. Time is physical. Now, it's kind of hard for us to get our brain around that. You know, we think we live in a 3D world because that's what we perceive as we look around. I'm a 3D being. But we don't live in a 3D world, actually. And Einstein was the first person to actually discover the next dimension, the fourth dimension, which was time. And he discovered in his day, which was the beginning of the 19th century, or 1905, he discovered that time was a physical property. Now, for example, the scriptures always said that. So why are we so you know, amazed at, at someone like Einstein? The Bible always said that. Do you know what God said about time? He describes it as a physical thing. He says that the day will come when he will roll it up. Like a scroll, he said. Hold it in his hand. You see, God is outside of time. Not subject to the, the rules, the laws that we are. Right? Let me show you this. How can we justify that our God is outside of time? Well, number one, God is a spirit. He's a spirit being. He describes himself as that. And as such, he's not subject to the same laws that you or I would be. If you've done physics, even at a basic level in school, you will have heard this illustration. This is how they prove that time is a physical property. If you take two brothers born on the same day, twins, and you put one of them in a rocket, and you keep the other one on Earth, and you send the brother in the rocket to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star to Earth, and you bring him back, the round trip will take 18 Earth years. When the brother who went in the rocket comes back, he's two and a half years younger than his other brother. How did that happen? Because time is physical. That's how it happened. And this is what Einstein discovered. Time, time is subject to laws, the law of gravity, the law of velocity. And because the rocket is traveling at speed, he ages at a lesser speed. So when he comes back to Earth, he's actually younger than his brother. Doesn't that really pull your mind in every direction? Well, if you can do that with a human being, then what is God like? God is outside of time. See, God is spirit. He's not subject to the same laws and the same boundaries and rules that we have in our little minds here trying to figure these things out. Look at this. Here's two CDs. One of them has got Encyclopedia Britannica on it. The other one is completely blank. Now, could you tell me which one weighs the most? The CD with Encyclopedia Britannica or the blank? They're both exactly the same. 
because data has no weight. And it's a bit like spirit, you see. We've got to think in some ways outside the box. Get back to the Bible. God is spirit. So he's not subject to the same laws that we see or we perceive on planet Earth here. God is eternal. And some people mistakenly think that, oh, I know, eternal. That means God is someone who's got lots and lots of time. No, God's not someone with lots and lots of time. Time doesn't apply to God. Time applies to us, right? God is outside of time. If you look at it like a piece of string that has a beginning and an end, God can go right around time, okay? He's, he's not subject to that. God is spirit. God is eternal. And God is outside the dimensionality as, as we perceive it. I am a 3D being. So you can look at me, you can see me, you can perceive me. But if I had two, if I was a two-dimensional being, you couldn't do that. Let me introduce you to my friend. This is Mr. Flat. He's completely flat. Okay? He's a two-dimensional being. So, do you know what? You can't actually, he can't see you. Because he's limited to two dimensions. In fact, if I took my finger and I poked it into Mr. Flat's world, do you know what he would see? A sphere, like an MRI. He would only see a slice of me because he's only two-dimensional. You understand that? You with me? If I enter his world, all he would see of my finger is a little cross-section because he's a 2D being. Now, I say all that to say this. Can you understand then how difficult it is for God to talk to us? I believe God is outside dimensionality, omnidimensional, call it whatever you want. Modern day physics tells us that there's something like 16 dimensions that they're currently working on, not just four. And, uh, you know, it, you begin to see, I think God's outside of all that. Let's call him omnidimensional. But you see that God then has a difficulty in communicating to you, in telling you about himself, in meeting with you in a way that you, 3D being here, will understand, right? And you begin to see maybe something of what Christ has had to go through to communicate this gospel to us. Most of us will know this painting, very famous painting, Salvador Dali. And I thank God that this painting is in this city because it brings people from all over the world. Dali had a, a passion to try and explain to the world how Christ communicated himself. How God, who is this transcendent, eternal, spiritual being, outside of our understanding of dimensionality, how he comes into the world and tries to reveal himself. How can he do that? And he painted various pictures to try and describe that to us. But the best one is this one. You see that Jesus here is crucified, but he's not crucified to a cross. He's crucified to what they call a hypercube or a Hinton cube. And it's the only way that, you know, science can come up with an explanation of what a four-dimensional object would look like in our world. And I just want you to see, friends, people have tried to communicate. And I, you, know, you need to have some compassion towards God for trying to reveal himself and how he has revealed himself. And Dali here is saying, how does Jesus Christ, how does God reveal himself to us? How's that going to work? And that's what that painting is all about about. Another thing I'm grateful for is that in their eagerness to disprove the existence of God, the scientific world have scored an own goal. They've put the ball in their own net.
because the more they discover, the more we're forced back into the Bible. And I, I, I stagger at the fact, and I am overjoyed by the fact, that year after year, the greater the revelations that come to mankind, the, the more often he's forced back to the Bible. It's just, I mean, it's wonderful. It's Christmas time. And people, you can mistakenly think that the Christian story starts at Christmas, but the Christian story does not start at Christmas. The Christmas story starts in the book of Genesis, where God had put man into the Garden of Eden. And it starts really with this particular verse right here, Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me explain what that means in a modern-day context. Remember 9-11, when the planes blasted into those twin towers. The following day, George Bush came out, and he made a statement. I thought it was a very well-worded statement. He said this, Someone else has started this war, but we will finish it at a time and a place of our choosing. That's what that is. God had created an environment in the Garden of Eden, an environment where sin was a possibility, but not yet a reality. And so God speaks there to Satan, and he says, I created an environment where sin was possible, but you have made it a reality. And I will deal with this at a time and a place of my choosing. And that was to be, of course, the cross. Now, you can come along the pathway of the logical gospel and like I did, because that's the sort of, of person I am. I wanted convincing that way. I wanted to see that practically. And you may well come to the same place I did, where I'm saying to myself, hang on a minute. Okay, so Adam sinned. But Adam has got nothing to do with me. Adam's got, he's got, he's got absolutely nothing to do with me. But you need to think on a little bit, because Adam has a lot to do with you. 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 Adam has a lot to do with you. You cannot disassociate yourself with Adam. Adam's DNA is in your blood. You come from him. You can't change that. You might want to, but you can't alter it. He's permanently a fixture in the human race because there we have our origin. In fact, they say that no, none of us are relationally more than, what, six steps away from each other. That's how close this planet, how tight this planet is actually is and the human race actually is oh you're related to Adam all right and of course God you don't get to choose the way this works God tells us the way it works and God says to us that the accountability is in the blood life is in the blood and with the blood that was in Adam when Adam fell his blood was then no longer acceptable to God his life was no longer acceptable to God put out of the kingdom and so you see like it or not you are in that family line. Look, this is my grandfather's death certificate. He died in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. He was fighting in the First World War in Egypt. They never found his body, and they sent this to my grandmother to say that he was missing in action, and they never did find him. And he was a hero. But let's pretend that I wanted to disassociate myself from him. Let's say I didn't like him. He'd done something bad. I didn't want anything to do with my, great, my grandfather. Can I take myself, can I take him out of my family line? Can I take his DNA out of me? I can rip it up. I can try and destroy it. But like it or lump it, he is my grandfather. 
I did a little bit of research recently and I was shocked. I was the first person, I've, there's nine in our family, you know. I was the first person to research our family's history. And to my shock, we come from Dumbarton. I had to ring my father at 90 years old and tell him he's Scottish. <laughs> You're the Scots Irish. He said, no, we're not. Yes, you are. And my mother's English. It was, I mean, it, that really, really did shock me. But it shows, I'm coming from Belfast. I can think, well, I'm a million miles from Glasgow. No, I'm not. My forefathers came from this place. All I'm saying, folks, is you, you can begin to understand and see that modern science catches up eventually with God in these different things, like DNA. So from the very beginning, God was saying to you, you can't separate yourself from Adam. Right? And the prophets would cry it out, and man would say, I've got nothing to do with Adam. But now, because of DNA, we suddenly discover, uh-oh, God was right. The blood that's in me is inextricably linked to him. There's a naturalist called David Attenborough, who I'm sure most of you will know. And there's a school of thought in the world that says that the, that the world just didn't have one Genesis, this one the biblical one, but that there were many Geneses around the world, that the African peoples had their origin, that the, the, the Orientals had their origin, and that this is just one account amongst many. And that's an argument that's often put forward, and you may hear that. And David Attenborough one day set out to try and prove or disprove that argument, and he made a documentary. The documentary was called In Search of Eve. And he went out to try and find the origin of the human race. And absolutely fascinating on goal. <laughs> his conclusion, and I saw it myself, I saw the documentary myself, his conclusion at the end of the documentary was to open a Bible at Genesis chapter 1 and to begin to read. Because his conclusion was this. Say, Chris here is Chinese ethnic group. I'm Caucasian ethnic group. There are differences between us. Bone structure, hair, many different things will differ. And so it is with all the races. However, David Attenborough discovered this. There's one common denominator in the human race on earth. And it's the womb. A woman's womb. Whether they're black, white, or whatever. Whatever race they come from, the womb is identical in all. You see the conclusion? There was one womb to start with chicken and egg situation. Because it, if there had been two, then over the course of time and history, obviously the, the distances would have parted and we would have had different forms of womb. But it proves the point that there was one origin. All right, back to the Bible again then. And as I say, science constantly catches up with God. The first point of a logical approach to the gospel, I think would be this, and you don't even have to be a believer to agree with it. God says to me that my blood is falling. He says that the accountability for life is in the blood. And he says that my blood came from Adam and I can't separate it. Now, science now agrees, but God has always said, said that. So now I agree with him. You and I are inextricably linked to Adam. That's the first step of the logical gospel. The second step of the logical gospel is logical. <laughs> Therefore, if I'm going to be saved, I have to change my blood. I have to get this blood out of my system because God holds it accountable in the blood. And you can read through the Old Testament where God sought to do that. He seeks to do it. He says in Isaiah 63, he knew he had to save you. He wanted to save you, but he couldn't find anyone to do it. 
He couldn't find one righteous person on the earth. He says, I looked and I found not one, so my own arm will work for me. I will enter the human race myself. Now, in some way, some of you medics can help us. Have we got some of the doctors here together? And we asked you to form a little committee. And we said to you, right, guys, tell us what we should. I've got bad blood. My blood comes from Adam. He fell. Now, you get me out of this situation. Come back with a way forward. And their little committee spokesman would come back. And do you know if they thought long enough and hard enough, do you know what they'd come back and say? There's only two things you need to get out of this fallen state. Number one, you need a virgin. And number two, you need blood from outside of this planet. You need a virgin and you need blood. Why do you need a virgin? Because the womb is sealed. The blood of the mother never touches the baby. Only the blood of the father. A child in the womb is protected from his mother's blood. So if we're going to get out of this bloodline, this fallen bloodline from Adam, there must be a, a womb in which the hymen is intact that is never, you know, a virgin womb. Then secondly, into that womb, you must get blood from outside the planet to place in the womb. And Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says this, that God put his own blood in Mary's womb. Now, as I say, if we hang around long enough, we would see that we will catch up with the Bible. Hallelujah. For centuries, the prophets cried out that a virgin would be with child. For centuries, before we even understood the nature of the womb, the scriptures cried it out. Right? God indeed came in to the human race. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Three different things. The Lord means he's God. Jesus means he became human, his manhood, mankind. And Christ means he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think a moment. Okay, my blood's fallen. I can't go to heaven like this. God enters the human race with God's own blood, born of a virgin, comes into the world. Do you know what? That's good news for him. <laughs> but it doesn't do anything for me. He's the Lord Jesus. He's the Lord Jesus only. As he's walking, until he dies. Until he becomes a sacrifice, he's not the Lord Jesus Christ yet. Do you get the point? I need someone to take away my guilt. I need someone to bear my sin. And that's what he did. The Bible says that the, fir that the first Adam came in limited form, but the last Adam, referring to Jesus Christ, is a life-giving spirit. And that's how we're born again. That's what he does for us. Remember Nicodemus in, in, in John's Gospel, where, where he's quizzing Jesus. How can a man be born again? Am I supposed to enter back into my mother's womb a second time? And Nicodemus is beginning to get a little bit of an inkling that he's fallen. And Jesus gives him an explanation. And he says, no, Nicodemus, your body will die. In the Garden of Eden, it wasn't Adam's body that immediately died. It was Adam's spirit. The spirit of Adam. Adam went on to live a long time, right? And when you're born again, it's the spiritual part of you that is born again, that inside, and you communicate with God through that. If we took our little group of medics here again and we said, okay, so Jesus came, Jesus entered the Lord Jesus, he entered the world, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on a cross. 
His blood was spilt. His blood was offered before God as a righteous sacrifice. Now there's a way. But what do I do? And they could have their little workshop. And you know, you don't need a Bible. Put your Bible aside. Just think about it. And those guys would come back and they'd say, <clears throat> we figured out what you have to do next. You need to re-enter the human realm. How? You must be born again. You must be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. And that is what Christmas tells you about. Don't be distracted. Don't be deluded. You need the Christ. You need his sacrifice. You need a payment for your sin. And we live in days that are so fast moving. If you, I mean, if you don't know what's going on, you're probably very relaxed. <laughs> but if you do know what's going on, you know, it's, it's, it's very frightening. I fear for people. I fear for people on this earth that the communication of the gospel is not getting out in the way that it needs to or should. Salvation is not a gift from God. Not a gift from God. Salvation is the very gift of God. Of God's own life. Remember in Acts, after Jesus had died and resurrected, what did he do to the people in the upper room? He breathed on them back in that spiritual life. That very thing that Adam lost. Re-energized them. It's actually a new creation. And I ask you this morning, the most basic but the most important question. Are you born again? Are you born again? I can remember what happened to me. It was a distinct experience. I went into a church lost and I came out alive. I turned to Christ. I repented of my sin. And I just warn you. I get, in fact, I, could, I feel like a prophetic warning in my system today for the, for the church and indeed towards the world out there. And the warning is this. Please listen very carefully. When Moses came, Moses was the deliverer of the people, right? The word used there is the word salvation. It's the same word. Moses came to bring salvation or deliverance to the people. What was the sign that Moses was coming? All the babies were killed. The government of the day, when Moses was arriving, the government said, kill all the babies, wipe out all the infants, right? That was a sign to the world that there was a deliverer near. Now you go forward a few thousand years. What was the sign that the Christ had come? The very same thing that the governments of the then world, Herod, issued a decree, let all the infants be removed. Let all the children be killed. That was a sign of what? That the Christ was near. That the Messiah was just about to come. Now, I don't know if you're aware of what's happening in the world today, but this is a manger scene in Chicago and this was actually last year now there's Mary there's Joseph there's all the shepherds and all the wise men there's just one very important part missing and it's Jesus because all across the world the governments just like they've done before are starting to change the law and we were in a garden center the other day and there was all the crib and all the scene and no Jesus. No Jesus. When you start to see the babies disappear, you can know that your deliverance is near. That the end is near. 
It is a prophetic sign. We've had it twice before. It's a war. This is Chicago. Look at this next one. This is Dublin. I mean, I come from Ireland, as you know, Catholic Ireland, where a recent vote had 73% of people who voted said that Jesus shouldn't be allowed to be in his own crib. Ah, yeah. Some of our people here went on a day trip to Edinburgh last Christmas. They went into the cathedral, and lo and behold, in the church, there was no Jesus. There was no Jesus in the crib. Now, look, why? Why does the devil want to remove Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because all over the globe, moms and dads bring their sons and daughters. They bring the children to see the manger scene. And as they stand there, the little girl, the little boy will say, Mommy, Daddy, who's the baby? Who is the baby that everyone's looking at? And the mom or dad introduce the child. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who that is. And you see, Satan does not want that question asked. He doesn't want these up-and-coming generations to know. And that's what this is all about. And those of you who were on the street yesterday, the, the drama was powerful. But at one point, uh, Elizabeth here walked through dressed as Mary and lifted up a baby to the crowd there, just saying, believe, you know, you better believe it, guys. Jesus most certainly entered this planet. And you need to go back, you know, get back on your knees until you find him. I would say to, to churches all over the world, Whatever you do, don't forget Jesus. We do our social action. You do give out hampers at Christmas and do whatever you want. Amen. And praise God. But don't forget the reason for this season. It is that Christ entered the world to take away your sin. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need him. I wonder, is everyone here saved? I wonder, is everyone here born again? Or have you still got bad blood? You can't change it. You can't alter it yourself. You need Christ. You need his death. His blood was acceptable to God the Father. God received it. And today, if you repent, he can breathe life back into you. And you too can be born again. I remember when I saw my friend who was saved, the first person I'd ever met who was born again and showed it. I, I, I used to go to work and there he would be and he would be full of spiritual life. And I began to ask myself this question, why not me? Why not me? He says God is good. He says God will forgive. Why not me? I'll go. And I began to go to church, just sit in an empty church. I went for two and a half weeks just sitting alone, quietly, being very honest and talking to God, searching for God, saying, God, you know, are you there? Hello? Are you really there? I've seen the evidence of you, God, in my friend. I've seen spiritual life in him, and I ain't got it. He says, I got to repent. So I started to repent. Everything that was wrong in my life, I stopped it. You know what you're doing wrong. You don't need somebody to tell you. You know what's wrong. I stop this, stop that, go back to the church and sit. God, I'm back again. And I said to God many times, God, 
I don't love you. I don't even know you. I just know this. I've seen someone who's saved. And it's scaring me. Because I know I'm not. I thank God. I saw him night after night. Two and a half weeks, I went to that place. And on, on, it, was, it was a Thursday night. On my knees, God forgave my sin. And I saw the cross for the first time. Hallelujah. Now that's Christmas. I want to ask you, if you've never repented, it doesn't matter if you're in church every Sunday, friends. That doesn't make you a Christian. People all over the world are going to church. That doesn't change a thing. It's you repenting of your sins and turning to Christ and putting your faith in his death in your stead and trusting him to forgive you. Jesus put it like this. He said, if anyone comes to me, I won't turn him away. That's a great promise. If you turn to me today, I'll not turn you away. You must be genuine. It's not a game. You must be genuinely repentant in your heart. And today can be the day of salvation for you. What a Christmas that would be. Would you bow your heads? I'm going to ask anyone here and any of you at home who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to make this your moment. Make this the best Christmas that you ever had by asking him into your life. And if you do that, I invite you just to pray a simple prayer with me, but mean it with all your heart. And follow through when you, you know, go out in these next few days and weeks. Go and tell someone that you've repented. I want you to seriously consider the sins in your life. And to be completely committed to letting those sins go right now. To dropping them and putting your faith in the cross. Lord, I pray for everyone here and all those watching. Would you send your grace upon us all? Would you help us, Lord? Forgive us our wicked ways. And save us, we pray. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed, please, here. And if there's anyone who has prayed that prayer and you want to repent, you want to be saved, what I want you to do is just stick up your hand and I will come and talk to you at the end of this meeting. Thank you. Anybody else? If you know that you're not born again, is there anybody else here? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, no greater present, no greater gift can we receive than eternal life, the life of God himself in us. I pray in this place for those who have responded, would you grace them with repentance from all sin? Grace them, God, and empower them for the lives that they have ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. I'm just going to invite the worship team back. Praise God. Let's stand, folks.